Hi, Jonathan Williams back again at the Bricks and Mortar podcast. Buying, selling, renting and investing in property. I'm sure we'll have something that's going to float that boat of yours and light your candle. Is the weather not absolutely fantastic at the moment? Just recording this on Sunday afternoon, there is not, as I look out the window, there is not a cloud in the sky. I don't know. Summer seems to have just crept up on us in the last week and it is absolutely gorgeous. Apparently Monday we're going to be topping 19. So if you're in Glasgow listening to this, it's taps off, lads, taps off. Just finishing off the last couple of videos that we're going to put on to the website, Bricks and Mortar Mortgages website, just a little bit about why... I decided to start the Bricks and Mortar Mortgages. It'll be going on to the website probably in the next week or so. We're almost ready to launch. I'm thinking we're probably going to be launching the beginning of June. So a little bit more about that at the end of this show. It is number 63, I think we're on for the Bricks and Mortar podcast. Who have we got on this week? Well, we've got John Cox on. He's a lovely big fella. He's a former professional rugby player. He's played 200 odd times for Curry, and he's into his mortgages and he's into his lettings. He ploughs his furrow in the Edinburgh market and he does some stuff with his old man up in Aberdeen. He started off assisting his old man when he was playing rugby and then he's just absolutely flourished and his business is just going great guns through in the East. And it was, you know what, it was one of those chats, like a lot of the people that I speak to, I've I've never met them and sometimes you wonder where the conversation's going to go. I mean, some of the guests, maybe you feel they're going to be a little bit guarded and then you don't get the best interview. But I have to say, John was absolutely superb. He was honest, he was transparent and really just very, very open. And I think it makes for the best interview. And I think this is one of the better ones that we've we've done. Why don't you... Make the judge of that and tell me what you think. So we tend to go for about 45 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so by then, pretty much everybody's fed up with my voice. Can't, <laughs> can't obviously say for any of the guest voices, but um, yeah, so we sort of tend to go for about 45 minutes or so. Okay. Um, and you know it can go in all sorts of weird and wonderful directions, and mm-hmm. and we just see where it takes us. So okay, there'll okay. be an introduction before, and so I'll do an intro and then an uh-huh. outro. So you know we'll just start as we, we get on. Okay, so um, it's getting comfy. Yeah, get comfy. <laughs> We've got you some water, um, and so you come through from Edinburgh. We're sitting in the 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 office in Glasgow, and. Do you do a lot of work through in in the Glasgow, or is this a new stomping ground for you? Very much a new stomping ground. Okay, interesting. That we've we've always been interested uh-huh. coming through West, and we haven't really went past Bathgate. Yeah, if I'm honest, um, of late I've managed to pick up quite a few good business to business contacts through here. Uh huh. A lot of good chat about property through here. Uh, yeah. Good strong yields for investment property. Yeah. And it's amazing just by speaking some almost fortunate I guess fortunate some some lucky conversations have come to us actually getting involved with quite a few good clients through here in the last sort of twelve months. 
The interesting thing you see there is you're having conversations and that's what it's all about, is taking your hands out of your pockets, stop looking at your feet and then get out there and start talking to people because it is amazing as to how fruitful that ends up being. Mm -hmm. Um, It is just really, really strange. I always remember, uh, this is a different slant on it, but whenever when I was doing the legals and we thought about doing, say if we'd moved offices or we had to do a a mail shot to clients, just contacting the clients would Mm -hmm. suddenly reap an inordinate amount of instructions which you wouldn't have had and the only reason you've done that is because you've gone back in front of your clients and said remember me I'm your solicitor and then suddenly they think well there's a will here or I was thinking about doing this that and the next thing so it is so important to continue to communicate with people yeah and I essentially do all the business development work for the business right myself and partly because I just really enjoy it Uh if I'm honest I, I love trying to get myself out as much networking events as I can yeah. and, and getting in front of the right people and like you said just having the right conversation we work internally a lot we do contact our existing client bank both on the mortgage side and the letting side um, on a monthly basis um, via sort of a mailing list and, and mm-hmm. emails going out to them all but I do like to pick up the phone to them quite often as well just to ask you have been able to check your emails is what we're currently doing just now is there anything yeah. we can possibly help you with um, but in terms of actually getting some new business through here, it just came off the back of me jumping on the train and coming through to a few dinners, mm-hmm. a few black tie events and speaking to the right people, yeah. fortunately. Yeah. And because we met at a Lend Invest uh, event where they were hawking uh, right. some, uh, some products there. I see now that they've moved out of the buy-to-let mm-hmm. market. Uh, so they're not doing any more two-year fix and five-year fixes. So they've just come in, given the product, and then suddenly everybody's thought this is the best thing ever, and suddenly they're away, sure. um, which is a real, real nightmare. And I don't know where. Um, from obviously, we'll, we'll touch a little bit, obviously, on, on what you do with the letting side. You also do mortgages, and it will no doubt be of interest to you, limited company, buy-to-lets, mm-hmm. Everybody's all over that. It still seems to be quite expensive. You've got Precise there. You've got Aldermore. You've got Shawbrook. I'm just waiting for the mortgage works to come on stream. We've been speaking to them. What's your understanding? My understanding is that it's end of April, beginning of May. We should start to see the products coming out. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I just believe it. If all of our high street lenders, the main names out there, the mortgage works, BM Solutions... Godiva, if these sort of guys start coming into the, the limited company back to let market, it's mm. going to become a lot more competitive. Yeah. The guys are having a stranglehold on it right now, hopefully their rates will reduce, their fees will reduce, their inflated valuation costs will hopefully reduce mm. and to try and make it a bit more of a level playing field. Yeah. Because that's the one issue I have just now when I'm sitting down with my back to let clients and my investors who are looking to now start moving their properties or buying new properties into an SPV. That's the issue is that when they actually look at the personal lending costs against limited company lending costs mm. there's a lot of them now having to go we have long conversations um, with their accountants and solicitors and it takes them a lot longer to actually make that decision now because they get quite adverse of paying that that amount of fees yeah I mean there's an enormous cost implication from transferring your buy to let personal buy to let portfolio into the limited company portfolio and unless you're right at the start of your journey 
I personally think that the costs will be too much for you to mm-hmm. be able to then recoup because it, it's no, you know, from the clients that I've seen, they think it's a panacea, let's get limited company. I think, well, fair enough. I think that if you're starting off at the moment, then limited, and you're wanting a long-term play, then limited company may be the answer for you. Mm-hmm. But it's very much as to how big a player you want to be. If you don't want to be that big a player, and you don't have that great amount of income, and you can maybe split it between husband and wife, mm-hmm. then there's an argument to say, well, you know what, you don't, maybe don't necessarily need to go down the limited company route. Um, mm-hmm. But for those who are wanting to play with the big boys, then you know we are needing the likes of the Mortgage Works to come out and play. Um, and hopefully, once they, as being a perceived high street lender, come out, because they're the lending arm the buy-to-let lending arm of Nationwide Building Society, if they can then persuade Birmingham Midshires, Godiva, Leeds Building Society, all to jump on, then that is going to be better for everybody. Sure. Um, I think it all depends on where the the landlord is and how many properties they've currently already got and then how far they want to grow things further. Mm -hmm. The issue a lot of them have is when they come to me and say, I want to refinance my, my existing portfolio into a limited company. Well, essentially, it's a purchase. And that's where a lot of them don't realise. No. Where the potential additional dwelling supplement, there's more taxation to pay mm. on each property. Um, whereas if you are looking to move six plus of your own properties, personal properties, into your own limited company, well, at that point, it's classed as a single transaction. So, yes. you'd be exempt of your EDS. And that's a small area where a lot of clients are now starting to almost work towards that. Mm-hmm. They'd much rather have six properties in their personal portfolio before they move them all into the limited company yeah. to save themselves on that additional 3% across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've actually got clients now working towards that. They've set up the, the SPV to start putting properties into it now. They've got four in the background currently, mm-hmm. personally. Um, and they're now looking off the back of our advice to potentially buy those next two back into their personal name for now yes. with an aim to potentially move them all into the limited company later mm-hmm. down the line mm-hmm. and at that point hopefully save themselves a three percent. And it doesn't get round the CGT, no. the, the capital gains tax issue, and that's still going to be there. So if you've got a big CGT issue then and of course because you're having to move all six at one time, you're then having to have a valuation done on all six and so therefore your CGT liability could mm-hmm. be pretty hefty rather than drip feed them in. So again, yeah. that's that's a conversation to be having with the accountant. Absolutely. The There's numbers guys. So much to take into consideration these days, it's not quite as simple as what it used to be. Uh-huh. Where you can just sit back and build up an absolute empire of buy to let properties not worry about it too Absolutely. much. So many different sort of fees and costs that I take into consideration uh-huh. before you do anything. Yeah, yeah. So listen, let's take take me back to the start. Take me back to, you've, you've played rugby and rugby was a big thing for you. You went pro back in the day. Um, how far did you want to try and take the rugby side of things, as far as it would take you? Yeah, so I left school and very fortunate at the same time leaving school, got off my first contract, um, which was a back in the day like a backup contract with Edinburgh Rugby. And you were assigned a, a Premiership Rugby Club at the same time. So yeah. I, I grew up in Ellen, just north of Aberdeen. Okay. Um, I had the opportunity at 18 years old to move to Edinburgh. And essentially just packed a bag and off I went. And So were you Ellen Academy, you schooled saw, up? Yeah. Right, yeah. okay, so you're Ellen Academy. And then you got picked up by Edinburgh. 
And did, were they scouting you? I mean, yeah, I presume you must have played what, Scottish schools and, Scotland and the like. Scotland yeah. age group. Scotland are 18, Scotland are 19, Scotland are 21. So, okay. so I played all the age group at national levels and I was picked up. Um, the late Bruce Hay was my, uh, he was a team manager at Scotland. Right. And under 19s. Okay. We had the World Cup that year in Treviso in Italy. We had sort of three and a half weeks out there. And when I got back from that, the phone call came in saying, look, Edinburgh are interested. He was also a key member of Burmuir Rugby Club at the time. Yes. I said, how about we get you involved here at Burmuir? You could be training with Edinburgh and Burmuir at the same time. Uh-huh. So it all worked out perfectly. I never really knew very much else other than the northeast of Scotland. I was very much kind of big fish in a little pond. There yeah, yeah. Very few rugby players playing any sort of decent level up in the northeast. So um, I packed the bag, not really knowing what to do. Let's just, let's just give this a crack. And, and, and your parents wholeheartedly behind it? Oh, massively. They, yeah. Massively, yeah. They were, I was the only sporty person in my family I've got two brothers neither right. of which were really into sport too much my younger brother dabbled a little bit in rugby but I think only off the back of the fact that his big brother uh-huh. um, so my folks weren't, never really had a sporting background they were just immediately thrown into rugby when I was eight years old wow and, said, right, let's and what position did you play? prop loose head prop um, right okay number one on my back all the way through from, from eight and the props in, in the pro contracts the props are the ones that make the big money is it the loose head or the tight head <laughs> the tight head the tight head because he's more money because he's the, the one yep. that controls the scrum because I was amazed when I I, I spoke to uh, the fellow Murray Ewan Murray Ewan Murray um, and I was astonished that sometimes on the pro teams the guy who's on the best contract is the prop you tend to find your your tight head and your standoff are the two that are making the most yeah. in terms of contract. It seems strange. The most in demand, you see. Yeah, but it seems strange given the fact that, I mean, how much from a from a, a playing perspective is the scrum still so so important? I mean, absolutely. I guess absolutely. For paying that kind of money must be. My opinion, um, although a lot of rules around scrums have changed. Yeah. It's, it's still a, an integral part of the game and I think it should always remain um, it still very much is your tight head is your cornerstone of your pack uh-huh. uh, and they are very much a, a good tight head in serious demand but a good front rower whether it be loose head hooker or tight head are very much in demand yeah. because the tight head are, they take on the most they're under the most pressure they really are the, the rock uh-huh. that needs to provide that sort of Balance, yeah, for the rest of the pack. We well, need to make sure to that your scrum's through them. Yeah, you need to make sure your scrum's not going backwards, so that you can play with some decent ball going yeah, forward. Exactly. Yeah. So, and and so, take me back, Treviso. So, tell me some of the people who were in that team of well, yours. I was quite fortunate that at that sort of time, that was um, early two thousands. There was a lot of cracking players coming through into the professional game and into the Scotland team. So yeah. From the likes of Alistair Hogg, still at Newcastle Falcons just now. There was, there was Hoggy, Mark McMillan, ex Wasps and Bath, yep. scrum half, played at Glasgow for a while as well. Uh-huh. Tom Phillip, ex Scotland centre. Yes. Um, Colin Shaw, played Scotland Sevens for years. Uh-huh. A lot of guys played at Glasgow. I mean, Fergus Thompson played through here at Glasgow Warriors. He was a, he was like a yep. had a big big following. You know, he was, he was a great man and servant to, to Glasgow Warriors for a number of years uh-huh. um, Ali Dickinson the tight head who's yes. still play, uh, yeah. playing loose head now but back then he was my tight head mm-hmm. um, we, we, had, we had a very very strong 
junior section, like yeah, uh, yeah, under 80s, 90s, 20s, we all played together uh-huh. all the way through. And it's quite funny that the majority of the team were all Cali Reds guys as well. So we were all Caledonia Reds. We all played um, district level together, and then also played in the in the Scotland internationals together. So we actually were going from about 18 of us in the in the Cali team. We're all going off to Scotland camp the week after district games together. So we had a really close bond. Tight, and yeah. That made the our Scotland age group side as competitive as we were. We, we finished fifth in the World Cup at under nineteen level, um, beat England out there fifth sixth playoff, which was which is always quite nice. They had yeah. a lot of big names playing for them at the time. And I think it was purely down because we'd known each other for Almost so long. a club mentality taking yeah, into yeah. The, the, the national setup. They were great memories to always look back at and occasionally look back at the the folks of the teams and like look back at all of our mm-hmm. programs and so on. Play not only the players I played with, the players I played against. It was, it was a phenomenal yeah. time. And how long did you play at Edinburgh for then? Not for too long, a couple of seasons. Yeah. Um, again, it wasn't contracts back then were very different to what they are these days. Yeah. That was still very much the time where they were still trying to get comfortable with what professional rugby actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, it was like club rugby. But you were getting paid for it. You were maybe training twice a week more, but you were getting paid for it. Right. Club rugby. Um, my my problem was there was wasn't enough money in it, and I was quite um, headstrong. I never really had anyone to look up to. Never really had any rugby mentors as such. Mm-hmm. And I very much wanted to try and make some some decent coin out of the game quite early on. So I chose to move to France. I had, right. a, had an opportunity through my my. Um, agent at the time to go off to the south of France and I said you know what I'm going to give this a go because the money out there was already flying Yeah. and uh, yeah if I'm really honest I kind of chased the money I suppose so I got uh, one contract dangled in front of me here in Scotland that wasn't really equating to very much mm. I had to supplement that with a club match fee when I was back playing at my at club or was at Bermuda or wherever yeah. or the opportunity to go out to France and make you know at 20 years old in excess of 30k and get a car and a flat and have a new way of life mm. and to, you know, to live in wine country and to play for huge, you want huge, yeah, huge crowds because the whole village or the whole towns would all come out uh-huh. irrespective of what level it was. Yeah. So I went out and played for a club called Perigu. It's about an hour inland from uh, Bordeaux. Yes. And an amazing little medieval city uh, with a huge stadium, a huge rugby following and to go out and run out in front of that sort of crowds week in, week out and play against some amazing French talent was... Wow was quite daunting at that age. And so, how old were you then? What 20. 20, right, okay. So I was out there for my 21st birthday. So, so, you were, so how long did you stay in France for? Just the one season. Right, okay. Just the one season. And then came yeah. back. Came back at that point, desperate to get back to playing in Scotland. Yeah. And if I'm really honest, the, the window was firmly shut. I don't like to think I made a mistake moving out to France, but if you look at my rugby professional perspective, I probably did. Although my, my buddies that I grew up with we're all, they all took that year, that, that contract with Edinburgh or Glasgow, and I chose to move away. Right. By the time I'd come back, the window was shut, and it, in, in certainly playing pro in Scotland at that point, there was no contract for me. So I, again, up sticks and moved to, um, <laughs> of all places, I moved to Sheffield and signed, okay. and signed for Rotherham, Rotherham Titans in the English Championship. Right. And it was a terrible mistake, if I'm honest. It was uh, back then. It, Championship rugby, in my opinion, wasn't really the place for a young aspiring player to so go. So championship was one down one from the, the premiership. premiership. And we're talking time scales here, just so that the listeners can get an idea. Two thousand three. Okay, right. Around about then, two thousand yeah, two thousand three, two thousand four. Right. Um, 
the championship teams were huge. There were about forty professional players. Right. Per team. So getting a look in was probably pretty. It was pretty tough. difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went down there, got injured, just at the end of pre-season, tore my calf quite badly. Uh huh. Tried to come back from that Too early. and get in where there was nine other props in the squad as well was oh quite gosh. difficult. Right. Yeah. yeah Being yeah. a young guy, not really well known because I've been away in France for a while. Uh huh. There was guys that were far higher pedigrees than myself, some Premiership guys that was taking a step down closer to retirement and come back down. So it was mm-hmm. really hard to get a look in playing in a championship level as a front rower. So I had a season, and I never even finished my full season there. I got through to about three quarters through the season and said, you know, enough's enough. I'm yeah. down here and miserable. Living in Sheffield, for me, wasn't wasn't the right place to be. I was My my heart was back in Edinburgh, and I was keen to get my classes home. Mm-hmm. Um, irrespective of rugby at that point, I said, you know what? I'm, I'd rather get, get back up north. Okay. I got myself back up to Edinburgh and um, decided, well, Let's take a step back from rugby and have a look, have a look at myself and work out what my next sort of plan is. Um, I always had a passion for property and for finance, mm-hmm. and I said I'm, I'm going to get my mortgage exams done. I'm going to get myself qualified as a mortgage. And advisor. where did that passion come from? Was that from your your parents? Yes, your father, father, my father. My father's a mortgage advisor. Okay, he right. was in mortgage and insurance all his days. Right, and. Uh, following him and seeing what he was doing I was always quite interested in it myself so I thought what I would do is I would take a step back play club rugby mm-hmm. um, back in the Scottish Premiership and, and start building up a, a career for myself and yeah. I, I was still young enough to go back to pro rugby at that point I felt even a year of building up my, uh, um, as, a, as a mortgage advisor at least learning the trade mm-hmm. I could then go back to pro rugby afterwards yeah. as it were that sort of point in my first year I did, I did reasonably well shall I say as a mortgage advisor, I genuinely went out and bought a desk from Ikea and put it into the bedroom in my flat at the time. I said, right, here we go. I'm going to... And just off you went. I'm going to become a mortgage advisor, handing in business under my, my old man's FSA number at the time. Right, okay. And uh, really enjoyed it. I found a, a real passion for it. I sort of realised, you know what, I'm actually quite good at this. I was getting the best of both worlds. I, I, I never joined Boromir at that point. I came back and joined Curry Rugby Club. And... Um, they were doing quite well at the time. Birmingham was a good club, but I didn't quite ever feel that it was home for me. I needed a club that had a bit more kind of a, a local club mentality. Mm-hmm. And Curry for me felt very similar to Ellen Rugby Club. Yes. Um, Just it, out it, of it, the out of the main city, because Ellen's yeah. what maybe 10, 15 miles. Yeah, to 15 the, miles what? north Aberdeen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I I felt more comfortable in mm-hmm. that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Clubs slightly out sense. west not in the centre of town, a far smaller playing base as well, and a real feel that I had to fight for everything that we got, rather than some of the bigger teams, or well yes. teams, teams with larger histories behind uh-huh, them, uh-huh. whereby they would maybe have 70 players at training, desperate to come in and get a game, whereas up at Curry, we were playing at some points, I remember when I first joined there, but just just over 40 players, Wow. Um, compared to some of the, the, the older teams, more traditional teams, the Heriots and the likes, mm-hmm. it, was a, it just felt... More comfortable for me. I enjoyed that that feeling of joining a club that really had to fight for everything mm. to get our hands on. And um, so I went and joined Curry. I was working as a mortgage advisor and a great client base with the the rugby side of things because there's not too yeah. many uh, rugby players who don't like to dabble in property. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a huge thing. That's it. I think I um, used that to its full potential in the first couple of years. Yeah, not just speaking to guys at Curry, but speaking to guys from Oakland, Barrymuir, speaking to. Other clubs trying to sponsor some other the local clubs as well, just to try and get some name awareness. 
mm-hmm. and within three years we were getting to a point where we were starting to do some really good business in Edinburgh and we had a, a client bank mm. that we could actually nurture and start looking and were at. were you it. still on the coattails of your father's FCA? When yeah. did you decide to, to, to actually go down the route of, of Cox & Co? Well this is it, so we, we opened up our office in Edinburgh under the, the company name at the time was Mortgage Arrangement Services. Um, MAS, catchy, real simple, yeah, does what it says in the tin. Um, MAS was the company and we opened up our first office and at the same time I was doing a lot of buy-to-let lending Yeah. and a lot of these buy-to-let clients were saying, look, you've got a great job in arranging the buy-to-let mortgage, who would you advise to manage this property sure. here in Edinburgh? Um, the entrepreneurial sort of side of me came out and I immediately put my hand because, well, me, give it, mm. me the opportunity to manage this property for you. The family have our own back-to-let portfolio that I was always kind of dabbling with and learning about through my old man. And it just made sense for us at that stage to start diversifying into something new, bringing mm-hmm. a different type of income up, this residual income. Time scales then were looking at, what, 2007? 2007. Okay. Right, so pre-crash. So I mean, things are just, just what, what can go wrong? Yes, so... Still during the time of self-certification and all sorts, <laughs> and we're yeah. doing a lot of... 2012 seems a long, long way yeah, into the future. ASU and uh, self-cert mortgages, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. all there, the money Wild West. doing great, um, diversified, and yeah, the market crashed, which surprisingly I didn't see, thankfully, I didn't see a huge um, dip in business. Mm-hmm. I was really concerned of where things were going. But we managed to get through it relatively unscathed compared to a lot of other companies, especially us being predominantly based in Aberdeen at the time, seeing a lot of our competitors that have been around for so long closing their doors. Mm. And we managed to stem the tide, shall we say, and got, and got through that um, relatively unscathed. And I think part of that was because we were slowly diversifying into property management at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so your business was coming from... Aberdeen, or, or was it yeah, based so in mortgage, Edinburgh? Sorry, maybe we're, we're kind of. I need to kind of explain that a little bit better. But the mortgage brokerage was in Aberdeen, right? Okay, that's where my old man was based, running, yeah. running the business up there, and I was trying to build my own client bank here in Edinburgh. Right. That's so okay. trying to build a business down here myself, I was travelling back and forth up the road on the dual carriageway at yeah, least sort of once a week. I remember um, that journey going up with too paperwork. Well. Yeah, because it was all just paper, pen and paper, you know, everything. So I was shooting back and forth to the Aberdeen office. Sign here. Um, yeah, at the time <laughs> I was on Union Street, I was taking on occasional clients up there myself when I was, things were slightly quieter for me here. I was helping the mortgage advisors up there. Um, and really kind of threw myself into it. So uh-huh. I was trying to build a client bank in the south of Scotland while also um, helping in the Aberdeen up office what, at least once yeah. a week. And so where you were on driving. Union Street up the top at end the of Union, Union Street. Street? Yeah, at the time we were near the there. church. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're at 259 Union Street, if I remember okay. correctly. Is that on the left or the right as you're going up? On the left, on the way up the up Union Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we lovely, are. lovely offices. Um, it was good fun. It was great times. You know, I uh-huh. really, really enjoyed it. Um, my father very much was a sole trader in his way. You know, he had a couple of mortgage advisors on and no mortgage advisors and and then loads and it just kind of went up and down and it, mm-hmm. it was great and how he ran things but I always seen us as being with me opening the Edinburgh office I really seen us as being a, a national business yeah. and we needed to start changing the way in which we're running the business mm-hmm. especially with now the portfolio of properties under management on the side as well and it, we decided to change we put a second business a second company in place called MAS Property but for our traditional clients we had MAS Mortgages, which was Mortgage Arrangement Services Mortgages, and mm-hmm. Mortgage Arrangement Services Property. It was 
a bit convoluted, one of which was VAT registered, the other one which wasn't, and so on. It was becoming, at the point I was looking at it, almost scared, going, it's like an HMRC's auditing dream. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Which funnel is it going to go into this week? Absolutely. And we were doing everything um, right and doing it correct, but I was concerned, looking at the bigger picture. Mm. For us to grow correctly, we need to sit down and have a look at um, our brand and our marketing and stop looking at it as Alex Cox and John Cox, who have who are mortgage brokers and who do lettings, but let's try and build an identity here that essentially has everything under the one roof. Mm. So it took us about 12 months working with a cracking marketing team in Edinburgh, um, Wolf Marketing or Wolf Branding, they're called Andrew Wolf is the guy that owns the company. Okay. The cracking guy, uh, we, we head off immediately and took us a good while, like I say, but ultimately we, we, we launched Cox & Co. Put the name above the door, put added pressure on ourselves. And the theme was really Cox being myself and my father Alex, and the co was was also not just our clients, but also the tradesmen we were using, the the contractors that were coming on board, mm-hmm. the the lenders that we were going to. It was the, uh, trying to build a sort of family ethos yeah. around the Cox family. And any and other options that the marketing boards just thought well, you might want to think about? Well, what happened off the back of this was we then. Put Cox and Co above the above the door. And uh-huh. We started to sell ourselves as mortgage brokers and, and letting slash property managers. Yeah. What I then started to realise was a lot of these landlords that we took on on day one when we were still MAS were on peanuts. You know, we were, give, we were literally giving it away. Oh, percentage back management fee, me. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And okay. They weren't we weren't really managing it in a way that we had, we'd never even sat down with some of these landlords and worked out a proper percentage. Correct, or yeah. even. We're, we weren't really reviewing our finances as often. It was almost getting treated like a second business and not under the one roof. So mm-hmm. it, was, it took a good few years, but we're now at a point whereby we manage all of our landlords. Well, not all, but the majority. The, the offer is there, essentially, of all of our services. So mm-hmm. our landlords sit down with us and do an annual review of not just the properties, but of their finances as well. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I was realising that, as you do, you, you pick up every last landlord you can get your hands on when you're starting a property management company. And for whatever fees you can offer as well, you're almost almost buying business just mm-hmm. to get them in through the door. And a lot of your, your first-time landlords, your accidental landlords and so on, didn't really enjoy the experience of being a landlord themselves, but were sitting on really quality um, rental real estate. Sitting mm-hmm. on, you know, they inherited the property from their great-aunt and they own it outright and it's sitting there ticking along and they're getting... You know, they, they get infuriated even with a phone call to say that the washing machine's packed in. Yes. I remember one landlord I phoned and said, look, your, your washing machine's packed in. He goes, why? It, it worked when I lived there. So that was, five, you know, that was like ago. five years ago <laughs> and so on and so on. You think, oh, uh-huh. it's madness. And that one particular landlord took three and a half weeks before we could actually get a new washing machine put into that property. Cool. And not only was that a new washing machine, it wasn't a new washing machine. They bought a new washing machine for their own home, waited for that to be delivered, then he... He's so got the old one. one and plumbed it in himself. But that's that only because he knew that one was working. Correct. <laughs> and that really struck a chord with me because that yeah. affected the relationship with the tenant and us. Mm-hmm. Because we have to work on behalf of the landlord. And that sort of time, we just had to go along with what the landlord was saying. So I then had a very high net worth landlord sitting there desperate to buy up some new property, and desperate to buy up other buy to let's to put into his portfolio and he came to me and said John do you have anything on your portfolio do you have any current landlords looking to sell mm-hmm. again the entrepreneurial side of me kind of the light bulb went and I went oh well 
I had this client, this landlord here, he owns his house, he owns his flat outright, it's worth 135k roughly. And I put two and two together ultimately and I've over a few phone calls. Landlord was more than happy to take his 135k into his bank in six weeks' time to walk away from it, wash his hands of it, and my high net worth client here, who was a fantastic landlord on the correct fees and prepared to run with Cox and Co rather than MAS, mm -hmm. got a brand new property under his books with a fantastic tenant. My tenant was happy because he got a better landlord, if you will. Yes. And essentially recycling the portfolio was born where mm. I sat down and reviewed the whole portfolio, reviewed each each and every one of my landlords and their, their finances, the ones that they allow me to. And we managed to kind of <coughs> back of that then start growing the portfolio in-house, if you will, right. by recycling the stock. Because um, it's such a fluid market and I think that's going to continue until we get to a stage where the government aren't sticking their neb in every 18 months and doing stuff with tax and doing stuff with legislation. The whole market at the moment seems to be incredibly fluid and I do think that there will be a vast number of landlords who will say, you know what, the game's up because they've bought in you know, 2003 or whatever mm -hmm. and, and it's time for them to cash their chips. Give me your view then on, do you think that that will happen? Do you think that that will happen to a great extent, a lesser extent? Because you're, you're right on the coalface, sure. you can see, because we've now been, that this is the first year when people start putting their tax returns in January for 17, 18, it will be the first year where the landlords that are over 40% are going to get affected by Absolutely. the tax changes. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of landlords, it's still coming as a big shock, or will come, I think, as a big shock. And that's mm -hmm. only the, that's the thin end of the wedge, because it's 25%, 50%, and 75%. So tell me, are you seeing any movement for landlords just deciding, you know what, enough's enough? Surprisingly, only the... The landlords with say one to three properties are the ones that are showing any sign of worry or looking to get out of the market, which is really surprising to me. Mm -hmm. That's my own personal experience yeah. within my own business. But a lot of our portfolio owners, and we've got some very, very large portfolio owners on, on our books, they haven't seen that that troubled. Mm. The reason for that is they've they've sat down with their accountants, they've sat down with us, they've, they've reviewed their books, they've worked out ways to either when to move them into limited company or not, which ones to keep, which ones to sell. And it's all about just keeping on top of it. And ultimately, without being too blasé, if you're getting into the market today, well, that's what you've got to handle anyway. It's like when ADS came into play, when LBTT started, then ADS and so on. I've had landlords have been with me from day one and they thankfully look at it the same way I, I do. So, well, that's, that's the market. That's you the cost of doing it. business. Correct. And if you look at it more as a investment management rather than buy-to-let management, mm -hmm. the costs along with it, in my opinion, again, are far less than what it would be if you're putting all that money into into other potential investment stocks and shares, etc. The amount of costs you have to have all that in play, the the risk, depending on where you're buying, can potentially be lower as well. And it goes down to your portfolio, whether it's an income play, or if you're looking for maximum potential growth in value, mm -hmm. or if you're looking for a mixture of both. It, it all goes down to the individual. Thankfully for my end, I've yet to see many landlords want to, to, to jump ship yeah. or, or pull out of the buy-to-let game. And I think that goes down to not just correct management of the properties, but correct management of their finances and their sort of long-term personal plan. Mm -hmm. You can work alongside that with them. And of course, the, the, the co of Cox & Co, the right accountants, 
the right team in place to yeah. make sure that it's all cost effective, the right people to help advise or, or refer my clients on to to make sure they're getting the correct services mm. right across the board. So because, we haven't seen much leakage. Yeah, because if you get that wrong with regards to your team, it can work you know, for you, but it can equally work against you. Ultimately, if you're recommending somebody then that comes with the Cox and Co badge. Absolutely. And the expectation is that they will have the same standards, the same high standards mm-hmm. that, that you've got. Absolutely. A few years ago, I sat down with a really well-known estate agent in Edinburgh who um, gave me a piece of advice. He, The owner of a, of a very, very large estate agency, they're, they're, they're national, said to me, he goes, John, I've never sold a house in my life. He goes, I've never sold a house in my life and I own one of the largest estate agents in Scotland. He goes, I'm a, mar- I'm a marketeer. I just happen to sell houses. Mm-hmm. And when he said that to me, it struck a chord and made me realise that I was actually spending most of my day just being a professional middleman. And I realised that I'm spending half of my time advising on things that's got nothing to do with mortgages or the properties. Mm-hmm. I get asked for all sorts of things. And it was getting comfortable at that point realising that I was essentially a professional middleman. Yeah. I just happened to be... A good mortgage broker, I guess, happened to be a good letting agent yes. or a good property sourcer, um, or, or they've had the ability there to source off-market private sales. Uh-huh. And once I got comfortable with that, I then started building my network, my own personal network, to work mm-hmm. alongside Cox and Co to make sure that my clients are getting advised and referred to the right people yeah. to match my own, what I like to think, quality of advice. So the estate agent was saying he's never sold a house, but ultimately what he's doing is he's putting himself in a situation where people are buying him. People are wanting to do business with him, and so therefore they're almost wanting to buy his ability, and his ability is selling property. In in essence, I always am of the firm view that before people are one of the main reasons why people will want to do business with you is because of you as the individual. Mm-hmm. And if, if that all stacks up um, and you've got a team behind you, then you should be successful. People buy people. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. Yeah. I think it's down to yourself as an individual and your own brand, your own mm-hmm. personal brand and your business brand. And if you can manage those both correctly and stand tall with integrity and do things in the right manner yes, and look after people actually care for the individual, for the client, for their properties. And not just the clients, but the, the tenants. One thing I learned a long time ago was looking after our tenants like they are clients, um, treating them in the same yeah. in the same manner. Yeah. The amount of our tenants have gone on to become homeowners and subsequently then become landlords with us as mm-hmm. well. Um, the relationships stuck from day one from giving them a viewing they then came back to us for their first time purchase. Yeah, and yeah. off the back of that, they come back to us to become landlords yes. with us, which is phenomenal. It, it's interesting. Great you should, case studies. It's interesting you should mention that because Ross McLeod, who we've had on the show with McLeod Lettings in the West End, he's a big believer in treating the the tenants as well as he treats his clients, mm-hmm. the, the landlords. Um, because it means then that they're more likely to pay their rent on time, they will leave the place in a reasonable state of repair, um, and then when they're wanting to leave that property, the chances are if they've been treated well, they'll probably ask you, listen, have you got another property? I'm looking in this particular area. Are you able to help me out? Definitely, definitely. Not only that sort of it, but then also my team, the Cox and Co team themselves. Mm-hmm. This is the big thing for me is I've felt well... We have our name above the door, mm-hmm. so we need to be 
ensure that we're looking after everyone that's a part of Cox and Co. Yeah. Co. And that goes down to my landlords, my mortgage clients, our portfolio owners, our investors, our tenants. And it comes down to the actual team, my property team, my mortgage team, my accounts team, everyone mm-hmm. that's in-house. We're really close-knit bunch. I've taken a long time to get to a point where it is now, whereby the team have been with me for a good period of time. Um, we don't have a high turnover of staff. Mm-hmm. And investing into them is, is, is integral to make sure that we're our, our success essentially as a company. So how many have you, because we'll go on I think and talk a little bit about leverage because you can't as an individual do it all and you've got to get your trusted lieutenants in positions of authority where they can work the way that you want them to work. So you've got your lettings, you've got your mortgage, you've got your admin accounts etc. Um, so how much of a team have you got? How many? So we've actually we brought, brought it down to a team of seven. Okay. So there's seven of us day to day in the business. Right. And I'm not looking to grow that at least for the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. I feel I've got the right people in the right places that have the ability to take on the amount of growth that we've set as targets for the year. Yeah. So therefore, as far as we're concerned, we've kind of hunkered down, if you will. Okay. Kind of batten down the hatches. Yeah. As of uh, the first meeting in January, we all came in with our hangovers. Said, right, let's get going. It's 2018. Mm-hmm. This is the plan. There's a seven of us. This is our goals for each area in the business: the mortgages, our lettings, and our sales. And our mm-hmm. sales is open market and off market sales, and mm-hmm. um, managed by the one sales manager for me. Um, and this is what our objective um, targets are for the year. Yeah. Um, but quite loose targets. We're not going to be dragging anyone over coals each quarter. Do you write them down? Do, do the staff in the office know what those targets are? Yeah, so they yeah. know what the targets are, but I'm keeping tally and we sit down every yeah. month. So every month we'll do a monthly review, but the team themselves are always keeping top of it themselves. And, so and, they, over all that. and there will be monetary targets, there will be other targets, no doubt, that you've set them. And do you speak to them, how often do you speak to them on a one-to-one about those targets? One to one, that's not set in stone. Uh-huh. I mean, we do obviously our proper appraisals and six monthly reviews, etc., etc. Yeah. But yeah. every week, I'll be sitting down with each of my team at some point. It doesn't matter whether it's informal or formal. You know, we'll sit down over a cup of tea uh-huh. and have a chat about how they're getting on, what they've got in front of them, what their workload is. Yeah. Up until that point in the month, what sort of deals they've already handed in, or what they have in their pipeline. Mm-hmm. So, informally, it's weekly. Yeah. I'd like to think, yeah. you know, I'm going back into the office this afternoon and um, I'll shoot back through to Edinburgh and I'll probably sit down with the teams Monday after all and see how they've all got on over their weekends, but then also what they've got on for their week. Uh-huh. And do you keep tabs on that? How do you, when you have an informal meeting, are you then, uh, are you going back to appraise that, that meeting and, and then putting that on their file as such so that when the next meeting you can then... I'm just trying to, because mm-hmm. I think it's very important, um, you know, we're in a step now where it's only myself and Catherine, um, and I'm very keen to put it on a formal footing whereby we've got something called a 411. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got your yearly goal, uh, then you've got your monthly goal, and then you've got your... Um, weekly tasks Mm -hmm. and every week you will sit down for half an hour you've got a document in front of you um, and the most important thing is placed at the top obviously and listen if you get that done that's the one thing that's the most important thing to do 
and if you don't do anything else, that's fine. But as long as you've done that thing, mm-hmm. then that's okay. Um, and I just think formalising that, I think it, it means that everybody knows where they stand. I can see from some employees, though, that that maybe doesn't work. Sure. Um, but then if you're running a large organisation, you've got to have some sort of framework yeah. that allows you to drive your business forward. We've got some structure in place, but ultimately I do like to leave my team to manage their own diaries yeah. and to manage their own client meetings. Uh-huh. Um, my portfolio manager, so our national portfolio manager, um, is... Comp- God, I like to call him a loose cannon. Mike is anything but a loose cannon, but ultimately I do not manage Mike's diary whatsoever. A free spirit. He is, yeah, because he gets the job done. Yeah. He's the most efficient man I've ever met in my life. I'm very fortunate to have him on my books. And as far as I'm concerned, I know for a fact every single day that he'll be working his socks off and his diary management will be bang on because he's, again, like I said, one of the most efficient men I've ever met in my life, uh-huh. personally and in business. So, yeah. Those guys, I think it depends on your team. It depends. You, you get to know them. As I'm trying to get all my get to know my team personally, and not just in business and in the, in the office every day. So, getting a feel for each other, they they know my shortcomings as well. So occasionally they will pop in and say, "You remember such and such is coming in," because uh-huh. they know that every once in a while I've got I'm, I'm, I'm juggling so much that they're trying to help me as well, which uh-huh. is quite nice. So we've got some structure, um, but in terms of your weekly diary management. It's more a case of us at the beginning of the week, we'll sit down at the end of the week and let's hope that it's all kind of come together for uh-huh. But if not, then we'll help maybe put uh-huh. something in place to ensure it doesn't happen that and, again. And what kind of management style of it? And thinking about here, sort of aligning that with the coaches that you would have uh, have um, played yeah. under. Um, I played, I've played rugby. Um, my main sport is, is cricket. Um, and I take a very keen interest in coaches and, and how they come across, how they're perceived within the team environment, what kind of coaching that they are doing, whether it's the carrot and the stick, whether it's the arm around the shoulder. Talk to me about the various coaches then that you had in, in, in rugby. I mean, it, it's a hard, brutal life in the front row sure um did you find that so we're talking sort of 2000s late 1990s early 2000s was there any difference in the coaching who was the best coach that you had from yes. a rugby perspective see this is the thing from coaching for me there's two sides of it there's rugby uh-huh. and there's the man management yeah and i've come across very few rugby coaches that are good man managers uh-huh but some phenomenal rugby coaches. Right. So it's hard to kind of... That's where I feel my management style in business is very, very different. I've really pushed very hard to become a good man manager mm-hmm. because I feel that's the one thing that my whole 16 years of playing senior rugby, at pro, semi-pro, amateur, sort of mm-hmm. level, but top flight level rugby, I've really come across as a good man manager. Yeah. So, and do you mean where do you put that? You've got coach, you've got man manager. If I mentioned the word motivation, mm-hmm. what would you would you see that as man management, or would you see that as coaching, or do you difficult. put coaching as well? That's the technical. That's how to scrummage, how to pass, how to kick a ball. So motivation comes from coaching. Man management comes down to discussing you as a player off the field, sitting sitting down with you off the field and discussing where you're at 
Yeah. So think of your management as your appraisals and your uh-huh. your reviews. So those weekly meetings that we just spoke about. Yeah. There's very very little of that, even now in the game. Mm-hmm. It lacks man management. It lacks sitting down one to ones to try and make you a better player. There's there, there's always been this thing in rugby where it's like sink or swim, and that's kind of where where the game, in my opinion, lacks. Right. Management. It's a case of some of the best coaches have had have been the best motivators and they know how to get the best out of these players but it's in a changing room way as in the, the you know the brave heart speeches or the individual quick kind of chat about how great you are and pick me up or some guys need to be told the rubbish and just scream and shout and F's and C's and the likes uh-huh. to get them motivated I'll show you, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Thing. but when it comes off the field and it's after the game or the analysis or during the week or you get dropped I've seen that with so many guys. One week they're starting, the next week they're not. Uh-huh. And there's no conversation. That's appalling. To help them understand why they're not getting picked a week later. And as uh-huh. the game has changed, especially in the last 10 years, whereby players are getting um, two games starting, the next week not kind of revolving, this the squad, if you will, the explanation of that is just lacking as to why they're doing that, especially with front rows. Goodness, I've, I've been part of it myself. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate in my in my eleven seasons of playing at Curry, I can still count on both hands how many times I started off the bench. Um, so so times I did, I never quite got the correct explanation as to why they did put me on the bench, and it was more a case of oh well, we want to give this guy an opportunity. And my argument was always well, for the last eight years you never give him the opportunity, so why are you starting? Yeah, today? so you start a game, let's say you finish the game. And then next week, if you were then placed on the bench, nobody would actually say. So it would come as quite a shock when you looked at the team notice board well, and you, you were there. You would get a call. So it got better as the years have gone on. This is not just courage. But this is a call. Why, why didn't he do it face-to-face after training? This, so this is it. Yeah, you very rarely get that. And That's I, I'm not using I'm not using Curry as my sole example because I'm... No, but this is going lot, on throughout all sports. Absolutely it is, yeah. And this is something that I found really affects not just rugby but all sports there's a a huge media push currently with regards to mental health in sport Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that can be not fixed as such but I think um, help can be given just by better man management Mm -hmm. I I know players that have retired from the professional game because of mental health issues and a lot of that stemmed from the fact that person the person wasn't being managed correctly and that, that, that's, that's huge. It's an incredible weakness uh, in management that they're not prepared to take you aside and actually speak to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you get dropped, you know, it, it should be out of the blue. You know, the management should be taking you aside after a game and saying, listen, you need to work on that. You need to, you know, put mm-hmm. you in a pathway towards improvement. And ultimately, their job is to analyse your performance and every week to take you aside and say, listen, you're improving, you're not, mm-hmm. you're not improving. You know, to, to not do that, I mean, that's, that's part and parcel, my view is that's part and parcel of managing, coaching a, a side. Mm-hmm. You have to have that rapport, that relationship with the individual members of your team. Sure. I think part of it comes from the Scottish psyche or mentality, if you will, as well. 
and I've spoken to a number of people about this. And what do you mean by that? that um, you pull someone to the side to have give them some form of constructive criticism, and the first thing they think is, "Well, why are you having a go at me? <laughs> why are you having a go at me? Why are you having a go at him? <laughs> yeah, I play better than him, surely. Why are you having a go at me?" And I think some coaches. But that's just a lack of self awareness from from you as an individual. The, the argument then can be it comes from both sides. Uh-huh. Players need to be more accepting of constructive criticism. Yeah, but. In turn, coaches have to understand the difference between criticism and constructive criticism, but, okay, and, and I, manage them. But I think that that some of that then comes down to parenting. Okay, so I have got two girls, thirteen and fifteen. Okay, fifteen-year-old played in the Scottish Club Championships. Um, they they won. GHK beat Grange um, in the there was a, a three-way playoff. Anyway, they, they won it last night. Brilliant. And. There's my daughter's playing, right? And she gets absolutely scalped by this girl who just goes down the wing, pops it in the centre and we lose a goal. And I'm thinking, well, you know, she's at fault because, you know, she's been scalped by this, this girl. But there's been so, I've been in so many other realms where all the parents, because a lot of parents go along to these things, but all the parents will see are the good things. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, if you don't tell your child that she's doing well, but she's also could improve in doing that, then no wonder when she goes higher up the food chain to district, to national, that she has an adverse reaction mm-hmm. because the coach says, no, you're not playing this week. So I think to me, and I see that from the cricket that I coach, um, the, the, the hockey that I've been involved in, um, at the sideline, that you know, there's this inability, I think, for a lot of parents to actually look at the performance and say, you know what, you didn't play well, mm-hmm. and you need to improve. You're slow. You need to lose some weight. You know, but then, but we'll also say to them, mm-hmm. that was a great offload, and and that was super. You did really well there. I think it mm-hmm. has to be balanced. I think. The problem, I can speak from, from personal experience, my issue was my parents had no rugby knowledge whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They had no sports knowledge whatsoever. So when I was younger, not only did I think I was big fish in a little pond, I thought I was bloody brilliant. Uh-huh. Because every game I played, my parents told me I was great. <laughs> my old man and my father told me I was great uh-huh. every single game. Yeah. So when I was at 18 and moved to Edinburgh to play for Muir and to try out and try and get in the, the starting lineup for Edinburgh and try yeah. and play that level, yeah. I couldn't understand why I wasn't either getting picked or I was getting shouted at at training or why they were saying, oh, you're not very good at this. And I'd say, are you joking? My dad tells me I'm great at that. And I didn't know any different. Uh-huh. So I had to learn. I had to learn without having that mentor, without having the correct advice at yeah, home. Okay. I had to learn that's myself an early on. Yeah. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I moved to France. Had I... I don't, I don't regret any of the decisions that I've made in my rugby life or my business life but what I will say is I've never really had any mentors to help me make the right decisions and I think if I maybe did take that contract in Scotland rather than taking the French contract uh-huh. I, I honestly sit here today and like to think that my, my life would be very very different I think I would have been on to having all the full caps and went down the rest I've got 30 odd age group Scotland caps and mm-hmm got to train with Scotland Day and I did this and did that and got some pro caps and I'm all happy with that but I never got the full cap Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but now I look back at that and say had I had the correct direction 
or the correct yeah. person behind me saying if you worked on this now this will develop this maybe you shouldn't go to take that contract no it sounds great you can go live in the Dordogne and drink wine every week uh-huh. and play in front of you know 16,000 local fans and but then is that going to benefit you long term as a professional rugby player uh-huh. my argument now is well it probably didn't and do you feel in 2018 as we sit here that the kids that are playing for under 20s under 18s that there is that opportunity they, they have got an opportunity to be yeah. mentored or is it still very much luck of the draw finally the rugby academy Scottish Rugby Academy is uh-huh. doing some good things mm-hmm. I was I was a bit of a pessimist when it first came along yeah um, my my issue always was well I moved it down because Bruce Hay phoned me and goes John come to Edinburgh and I never asked for anything and when I arrived in Edinburgh, I was then out of nowhere given a club flat, an opportunity for a club car, and then this and that, and all the next things. So yeah, yeah. I never asked for any of that. And then when I joined Curry 11 years ago, I was you know, one of the senior players by that point, and I'd have young guys thinking about joining Curry, and my coach would say, John, could you have a word with this young lad? He's thinking about coming to Curry, I'd make the phone call. Even as, as recently as, say, two, three years ago, when I first became club captain at Curry, I'd phone up this young, young lad a schoolboy and I say look you're about to join senior rugby and my coaches have been watching you I'm aware of who you are myself and I'd, I'd love for you to come and join Curry and the first thing they would say to me is great what are you going to give me uh-huh. and I'd say sorry you're, you're not where does that come from because this is where it was getting it was getting to a point where uh-huh. every, every young lad was becoming a star at 18, 19, 20 what's in it for me what's in it for me what am I going to get this? When, when do I get my contract when do I get my pro contract when do I get my first game for Edinburgh when do I become a star and I think now, mm-hmm. four years, five years into Scottish Academy, they're starting to get it right. These guys are getting nurtured correctly, they're getting looked after, they're being advised correctly, mm-hmm. they're being managed correctly. Um, to be a bit more humble and be a bit more accepting that they've got a long way to go, just because they've been a star at under-18s level doesn't uh-huh. mean to say they're going to walk into a premiership team or even a pro team. You know, do, do you think that they've almost feel as if they've got an entitlement to do that without doing the Absolutely. hard yards? Absolutely. Where does that come from? From, again poor management earlier that's what I thought I had at 18 uh-huh. I thought that's what I was going to get I thought that, you know, since I moved to Edinburgh I'll be starting for Edinburgh every week you know I, I, I genuinely I didn't think I'd have to play my first full season at Muir and training with Edinburgh I thought no I'm going to go straight down there and play because I'm the best rugby player in the world you know and there were so many kids <laughs> of that age that kind of thought the same but I think uh-huh. the ones who had some from a family rugby background or had someone reining them in a little bit yeah um, benefited from having that and I know I looking back now in hindsight could have really done with that uh-huh. um, and I've taken a lot from that I had to grow up quite quickly when I got into the the world of finance and so on yeah. but, you know I've got to start learning from other people's mistakes and I've got to start if I'm going to build this business properly uh-huh. I need to learn from what I've done up to this point and yeah. take what I've learned from rugby and put it into my business so what is the, the what's the best let's let's talk about what's the best thing from rugby that you've taken and you now utilise in your, your business career, whether that's personally or whether that's something that, you know, a coaching aspect, a mentoring aspect, whatever. What's the best thing that you've taken that rugby's given you? Goodness. See, rugby shaped me as, a, as an individual. That's how I look at it. It's all I've ever done. 26 years of yeah. playing rugby. Um, is that discipline? Do you mean the discipline? Yeah, so my own morals, my discipline, uh-huh. I would get up in the morning. I remember, and everyone's heard it, everyone's heard the kind of the old Jim Telfer sayings from rugby, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, 
Mm-hmm. And if you can look yourself in the eye, you know, the day after a rugby game, or whether you can't look yourself in the eye the day after a rugby game, mm-hmm. um, when you come off the pitch and you look at the mirror in the changing rooms, did you do everything you could for that jersey? Or when you go out in the pitch, you're not playing for yourself at that point, you're playing for that emblem, that logo that's on your shirt. Mm-hmm. And you come off the pitch and say, well, did you do it justice or not? And I have tried to take that in some ways without kind of giving some sort of brave heart speech. You know, <laughs> I've taken that into business. I'm behind you. Yeah, yeah. Come on, I, I go in every Monday. To the there we go. Come on, come on, team. Follow me. We charge down George Street and the Princess Street. Mortgage business. Give me a leg. Again. Give me a leg. Like, Here comes John from Cox and Co. His, his blue face blue paint on. Running through flag. Princess Street Gardens asking for lettings, asking for landlords. No. I just genuinely feel that I don't want to do business. I don't want to do what I'm doing unless I'm enjoying it, mm-hmm. anything in life anymore. So as far as I'm concerned, I want to enjoy what I do. I want to feel that when I go to bed at night, I can sleep at night. I want to feel when I wake up in the morning, I look at myself in the mirror and say, right, you've done well so far, let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Let's keep working hard. Mm-hmm. When, when there is a mistake that's been made, I learn from it and I yeah. don't just shy away from it. If there's an issue in the office, then we step up to it and we deal with it there and then and we mm-hmm. deal with it like proper human beings. Bringing a common sense approach to my business has come from me trying to bring a common sense approach to my rugby. I, when, I, when I finished playing pro rugby, when I joined Curry and I, I settled down to be a, an amateur rugby player in the Premiership, a few things kind of struck home to me there as well. I need to become more honest. I need to become more honest rugby player because I grew up thinking I was great and I didn't know any different. And mm-hmm. I look back at my videos and I look back at my games and I go, you know what, John, you could be better if you just wind your own neck in and okay. think about yourself. And I believe I've had success in business through success in sport, but success in sport isn't 90 caps for Scotland. Success in sport, to me, is learning about yourself as an individual, learning about yourself and playing uh-huh. at the level that you are good at, the level you're capable at and excelling at that level and under, learning and understanding yourself as a human being. And for me, playing, I've played nearly 400 games in the Premiership, um, won, won the league three times, won a Scottish Cup once, so I've done everything you can do in, in club rugby in Scotland. Uh-huh. And I sit here today thinking, you know what, I've had one of the, my opinion, one of the most successful club careers in the last 10 years out of anyone that's played uh-huh. in the Scottish Premiership. And I'm really, really proud of what I've got what I've got out of rugby so therefore I think it's successful but normally when you speak to people talking about success in rugby you want to speak to the guy that's had three Lions tours and the 100 caps for their country yeah. and everything else yeah. I'm, I'm happy with my lot I'm really happy with what I've gained from the sport uh-huh. and what, what I take from that now is put it into my business and try and become that that honest businessman we want to be doing everything we can gold standard everything correct everything right and everyone makes mistakes and if you make a mistake well you fess up to it there and then you, and you deal with it yes head on I, be, I, be, I take that back businessman yeah I, I, I um, coach cricket um, got a school team um, and they, they rocked up against the we did a lot of training over the the, the winter um, we had our first game there on Saturday um, and we had three kids who hadn't played uh, I hadn't come to training um, and you know there was a lot of rough edges around the, the team and there was a fair number of mistakes mm-hmm. um, and it very quickly descended into a bitching and grizzling session about you know they're at fault he's at fault why hasn't he done that and I, I took them aside and I said listen you need to understand fault 
and responsibility. Ultimately, fault, nobody's trying to do a bad job. Nobody's trying to drop a catch. Nobody's trying to run around a ball. Nobody's trying not to stop a ball. We, under, we need to understand that we are all responsible and we need to take that responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, if we've made a mistake, then we need to hold our hands up and say, as an individual, I could have done better. And that's going back to your Jim Telfer thing about looking at yourself in the mirror and say, do you know what? Have I done as well as I could have done? Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting from what you're saying about your own perspective and your self-analysis of yourself and quite very interesting that you've said and looked at yourself and said in your words John I might be better if I wound my neck in Mm -hmm. and that's that's a wonderful thing for 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 somebody to have the confidence to be able to say about themselves sure because there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. Somebody's confidence is another person's arrogance and somebody's arrogance is another one's confidence. Mm-hmm. But for you to know and analyse and say, you know what, I need to wind my neck in is, is enormous. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic thing to hear. Yeah. <laughs> it took a while. It took a while to get to that sort of point. Uh-huh. Um, I do believe I'm very self-aware now. Mm-hmm. And I know what my weaknesses are, but I am... I'm, I know what my strengths are mm-hmm. and the more I can bring that into my day-to-day working life but also my personal life and if I can rub off on the right people as much as I possibly can mm-hmm. it makes for a, a better place shall we say um, and if it, if it works for my team in at Cox and Co then even better that's what I'm trying to put onto them yeah. is that we don't only need to be the best at what we're doing but if we can work bloody hard towards it and ask for the right help and make sure that we're using this common sense approach whereby we're being a bit more human in, the, in our approach to doing things and we're going to build some really good relationships. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what it's all about. Sure. And listen, I think we've been going an hour. I think we've, oh, wow. we've, we've right. come now just to, I think, a good enough conclusion where we, we may want to just knock that on the head. <laughs> I wanted to speak to you about the Code of Conduct. I wanted to speak to you about GDPR. Um, and marketing etc we need to have another conversation because I think the listeners I'm sure out there will be getting some fantastic feedback because we just as I said to you at the start of our conversation it goes in all weird and wonderful directions of course it does I'm sure a Billy Connolly sketch had we we started off and you said you know what in 45 minutes I'm going to talk about winding my neck in you'd be thinking (laughs) how are we going to get to that but that's the way it goes and I think that's why people enjoy the chat so listen thanks very much pleasure cheers cheers you know what I really do like the interviews where we talk about all sorts of sort of personal stuff because I think that's for you as the listener is is really what you're wanting I mean are you really wanting to listen to the same old story about how property developer did that and how mortgage broker did that and estate agent etc no I, I think you want to try and get a little bit deeper a little bit behind the curtain so to speak and find out what were the problems what were the difficulties and I'm hoping that you enjoyed that one with John for me personally I just really really enjoyed the conversation 
and we're looking hopefully to get John back on with a second instalment as I say he's going great guns through in Edinburgh and if you've got properties to let through in Edinburgh then really do get in touch with him because I'm sure he will be able to serve you absolutely magnificently. On the interview trail, the well is a little bit dry at the moment. We're hoping to get Richard Pirrett, uh, an estate agent who works next to me on the show. We've got Ross Harper booked up. He's a busy man. Ross Harper, he's doing the Belmont West development, if you know, just off Byers Road, that beautiful old church, which I think was Laurel Bank, uh, the old school at Laurel Bank, and he's doing that up. Magnificent project. So he's coming on. And we've got a couple of other irons in the fire, probably towards the end, middle to end of the summer. So I'm looking for somebody out there who uh, wants to have a chat about their successes, their failures and what they're going to be doing in the future. The whole point about getting uh, people on is just to have a chat. There really is. There's a very generic list of questions that I send uh, the interviewees but very much it's a sit down we put on the recorder and as I said and you've listened to it we just have a chat and I think that that really does lend itself to what I'm trying to achieve for you. I mentioned earlier about bricks and mortar mortgages and we're almost there to start bricks and mortar mortgages and I guess one of the reasons why I want to wanted to start bricks and mortar mortgages was I see, having had 20 years experience as far as a solicitor, I see the stresses and strains of the buying and selling process. And it really just shouldn't be like that. You know, it's not, as I said to so many of my clients, it's not as if it's a court action where X owes Y money and Y doesn't want to pay X. Ultimately, what we've got here is we've got a situation where we have a buyer and a seller the buyer wants to buy, the seller wants to sell, and all we need to do is bring them together. But it's the lack of communication, as far as I believe, is the problem, and that's the thing that causes stress. It's the estate agent not talking to the, the mortgage broker, the mortgage broker not talking to the solicitor, the solicitor not talking to the estate agent, and round it goes and round it goes, and you as the client are caught in that maelstrom. You're the one who has to probably sort all of that out. And so why I decided to set up bricks and mortar mortgages was very much on the basis to help avoid the usual stresses and strains of the purchasing process. And how I'm going to do that is obviously that I'm a solicitor, legally trained, and I still have a consultancy agreement with Lindsay's. And I can then act as a solicitor, holding your hand initially at the start of the transaction before sending it over to Lindsay's to deal with the missives and the title examination, whilst that leaves me at Bricks and Mortar Mortgages to concentrate on getting you, the client, the best, most suitable mortgage for your circumstances. And listen, I am absolutely certain that I can give you the best advice, support and help to make sure that the journey that you're going to go on is as smooth as possible. So listen, give me a call, drop me an email. It's Jonathan at Bricks and Mortar Mortgages. And let's see if we're able to help you. Listen, that's I think the 63rd podcast that we've done. 
I hope you're enjoying the content. It would be great to get some feedback from you. So drop me an email with the feedback and we'll, we'll see if we can get that on the website. But again, without you, there is no podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. You've been listening to the Bricks and Mortar podcast. It's your property podcast. 